They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his inhabitants. Do not, remember against, do, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is your God? Let the avenging of the of the outpouring, outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, are, we your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 19. We are reading verses 11 through 27 this morning. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, Jemina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks as we gather ourselves this morning around a difficult passage, and so we rely upon you and your spirit to give us understanding. Lead us into all truth and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. One of the great benefits of being a Presbyterian is that when you baptize, you're allowed to sprinkle and apply a little bit of water and not have to put on waders, but I've determined today that I need to start wearing waders. Um, I have drenched the whole front of my pants, and fortunately, you can't see that, but um, I'm having lots of water issues up here right now, so it's running all the way down my leg. Several years ago, under the Christmas tree, my children opened several presents, a series of presents. It was a dog bowl, a dog collar, a dog bone. And they looked at us with great anticipation, looking around, waiting for the dog to pop out of the box. It was not to be the case. Melissa and I had agreed that one of their Christmas gifts would be a dog, but we weren't prepared to make that purchase to procure said dog and bring it onto the premises. And so the children were a little bit um, disappointed. Here they had been asking for a dog, and then they received the pledge and token of the dog, but there was no dog. There was ongoing debate in the family about what kind of dog would be purchased. We bought a dog book and began to look through it, and you know, we were decidedly not a cat family. And for you owners of cats, I'm sorry. They're not very loved and treasured in the Colson household, inferior part of God's good creation. But there also is a great debate that goes on in the dog family about what's an acceptable dog. You know, you have small dogs, things like Shih Tzus and Terriers and those wiener dogs. And I've never met more loyal people than the owner of the wiener dog. But this is certainly part of God's creation that came after the fall, small dogs. And, you know, because then you have medium to large-sized dogs, things that are worthy of praise and deserving of admiration. You have Labrador Retrievers. You have, uh, you have Setters. You have dogs that are worthy of a good home. And our children began to then ask questions because there was some delay. For some good reasons, we didn't purchase the dog immediately. The debate was going on about the dog, but then we were moving, and so there was going to be a process towards actually us making good on the promise of the dog that they had received in the dog collar, the dog bowl, and the dog bone. Those things hung around the house and became somewhat of a sore point of contention. They began by asking the question, when are we going to get the dog? And then as the months rolled on, you can imagine what the next question was. Are we going to get the dog? (laughs) Are you going to make good on that Christmas gift? That was the natural question for them. They expected it immediately, and then there was delay, and there was struggle, and there was even somewhat of a doubt and a failure of their faith in their parents that we were going to make good on the promise of the dog. The waiting was the hardest part, and it somewhat began to undo them. In Luke 19, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is going to be described as a waiting period. 
his disciples, as he journeys to Jerusalem, heard him announce that the kingdom of God was near and at hand. That all these things were about to be realized and he was going up to Jerusalem and they had expectations, like my children on, Christian, on Christmas morning, that something profound was about to happen. Look what Luke says in verse 11. As they heard these things, that's the announcement of salvation, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so Jesus is here correcting that expectation that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, and he's preparing them that after he dies and he rises on the third day, that there is going to be a waiting period. There will be a delay, a gap, you could say. And he's attempting to prepare the church for that because he knows that the church will go through trial and tribulation and that some will persevere in faith, but that some will begin to doubt And they'll begin to ask the question, is God going to make good on what he said? Like my children, are we going to get the dog? The church can begin to ask that searching question of faith. Is God righteous? Does he make good on what he promises to do? And so this morning... Jesus is drawing us in the direction of how we live between the inauguration of his kingdom when it gets set up in his death and resurrection and the consummation of his kingdom when he returns to rule over his world. Because that is the big arc and narrative of the Bible, that the God who created the world will return at last to redeem the world. And that the world that was created righteous and just and was then corrupted and polluted by sin, that God will return in judgment to purify and cleanse that world and to remove the presence of sin and redeem his forgiven people, raising their bodies to new life in his new world. That is what we are being drawn to now. And the question that's so important for us to answer is how do we live in this time between the times, between the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom and its final consummation. And what Jesus will do this morning is he will clarify three things about that time between the time. He will clarify our context, he will clarify our future, and he will also clarify our commission. And so first, Jesus clarifies our context. He tells a pretty intriguing parable It begins in verse 12 this way, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. There is some political context from Jesus' own day that informs our understanding of this parable. Herod the Great and also his son Archelaus were the local designated rulers of the area in which Jesus lived, and they received that designation from the Roman authorities. But in order to be designated, they had to apply and go to Rome. And then in Rome, they would have this authority conferred on them, and they would return and take up reign over their little dominion that was part of the Roman Empire. The Jews didn't always like Herod or his son, and so they actually sent a delegation to Rome to make appeal to Caesar 
that these men not be made king. Jesus plays off of that political context in telling a story. But you can see that in the story that Jesus creates is that there is a nobleman who's not an evil or wicked man, but who has a rule and goes off to receive his kingship, to receive his reign. And then he was to come back and exercise that reign over this, over this uh, political area. But what happens is that the citizens don't particularly care for them, care for him. And so Jesus also appoints servants who were to act on his behalf while he is absent. This is what was to happen, is that the servants were to serve the nobleman while absent, knowing that the citizenry was unhappy, and as they made appeals to remove him from power. And friends, what this informs us, what Jesus is saying in this very dense political parable is that we live in a contested space. That there is a rightful ruler and king, and that though he is absent right now, that the dominion belongs to him, that it is his, and that there will be a contested life that we live. There will be trouble and disagreement. That the beliefs and the value of the kingdom the proper uh, bringing yourself into accord with reality and submitting yourself to the king, not everyone will agree. It doesn't make it untrue that the truth of the gospel is not dependent upon a democracy in any way. That this is the truth, but the citizens don't always agree, and they're not in line, and they reject it and rebel against it. And sometimes in the Christian church, we seem a little bit too surprised by the fact that the world doesn't just agree with us. Friends, Jesus sets this up from the very beginning, that there will be conflict in the days ahead. In the time between the times, you can expect disagreement. You can expect rebellion. You can expect different values and beliefs to assert themselves. You can expect ridicule, he'll say in other places. You can expect disenfranchisement. But friends, this is just simply the order of the world as we wait on the return of the king. We represent the crown interest, and those crown interests are disputed. And that we need to become comfortable with that dispute. In the United States of America, we've lived for the past 100 and 200 years with a certain amount of cultural consensus in which there was a general sense of buy-in, of a Christian sense of morality. Even if everyone was not Christian, there was a general leavening of a Christian ethic. We're well aware that that is receding in our culture, and for some of us that is extremely disturbing. It is sad to see there are difficult things to swallow, but it's also important for us to remember what Jesus tells us to expect. He tells us to expect a contest. That not everyone is going to agree. That his authority is not contested. It's not up for vote and in question. But there will be those who rebel against it and deny it. And so we need to grow comfortable with that. And what becomes incumbent upon us is to figure out how we then navigate it how we work with that context, with that contest. But the second thing that Jesus clarifies here for us is that he clarifies our future. 
You notice in verse 19, 15, as he forwards the parable, he says, when he returned, he's speaking of the nobleman. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him. And this is Jesus' very strong statement of what lies at the core of the Christian faith. At the very heart of our confession is that the king who went through death came out in resurrection and who then ascended to the right hand of God that one day he will return. He will return to this earth to exercise his reign and his rule over it, making all things new, removing the pollution of sin, removing all the rebellion that exists inside of his dominion, and purifying the world. And this will be the gracious act of God to restore the creation to what it was always intended to be. But this is all predicated upon the idea of the certainty of the return. And friends, that is the great Christian hope. If there's one place that we invest our hope, it's not in an election. It's in our eschatology. That is our view of the end. That Jesus will return and make all things right. This is what Christians have used in order to survive all kinds of different contexts, all kinds of different disputes as they've lived out their faith under dictators or under democracies, as they've lived out their faith under kings and queens of different beliefs, as they've lived out in brutality against religions that absolutely disagree with them and would even kill them for their faith. It is the great Christian hope of Jesus' return that provides a steady anchor and a foundation for them to root their lives and to look forward and off the horizon to something in the future. When Melissa and I were first married, we lived in the upstate of South Carolina. And I discovered while living in the upstate of South Carolina that there was a tremendous amount of Revolutionary War history. Now, as a kid, I had grown up at very close to the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. And so I was right there and was steeped in revolutionary history. And it was like this old passion from my background was ignited and inflamed. And so I began reading books on the American Revolution. One of the most interesting books I read was called A Devil of a Whipping. <laughs> and it was about the Battle of Calpins, which was not far from Clinton, South Carolina, where I lived. And as I read this book, A Devil of a Whipping, I knew who won the battle. I knew that the American Revolutionary Forces won that battle against the British. But as you actually read the details of the battle, I found myself up at night sweating through the details because it was implausible. It was, it, it was crazy. Banaster Tarleton, the great British general, was bearing down on this ragtag mercenary-like force of revolutionaries and patriots, and he bears down on them and loses. And it's, it's inconceivable how it happened. And as you read the details, you can almost lose faith that the Americans are going to win. And I had to remind myself as I read through that narrative that I know how this ends. And friends, today, you need to remember that. We know how this ends and I'm not speaking of the United States of America. I'm speaking of the future of our world. We know exactly how this ends. We don't know how and we don't know when, 
But we know that our Lord Jesus will physically, in a body, return, and he will come to dwell with the creation, and he will renew all things and make all things right, and he, has, he is preparing something that eye has not seen and nor can the mind imagine. And our bodies will be raised from dust and assembled back together and will be part of creation as is always intended to be. That's how this wraps up. And in the middle of the uncertainties of our world, when we live in complex realities, where we live in a world with nuclear bombs and terrorism and all kinds of things that can scare us and uncertain governments, unpredictable rulers, Friends, what you need is not to have your hope in an election or in a president or in a house of representatives or in a Supreme Court. Your hope has to be grounded in something more profound. It has to be grounded in this great hope of what God will do to renew his world. You know how it winds up. You know how it ends. And so place your hopes there. The third thing that Jesus clarifies here is that he also clarifies our commission. That in this time between the times that we have a commission. You note that the backbone of the story as the nobleman goes away, that he appoints servants and he gives them money. He gives them about 90 days worth of money and says, do business. And so these servants were his allies. They were set apart for him. They were commissioned to do work on his behalf. They were publicly now identified with this unpopular nobleman. That they had been granted this great privilege, set apart and singled out by nothing they had done to become this nobleman's servants. That's the story of grace and salvation. And then they were to go about, because of their privilege, and to take up a certain responsibility. That is to publicly identify with him, to be for the nobleman's interest. They were to invest the nobleman's resources into the future of the citizens. They had an enormous commission, an enormous responsibility. And it's all built on the great privileges of being servants of this great king. The nobleman returns and he calls the servants to account to see what they've done. The first was incredibly productive with his ten minus. The second was productive with his five. But what gets interesting is the third, who was given the minus, but you note that he didn't invest it. But rather, what exactly did he do? You look in verse 21. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This was the response of the third servant, who had been granted these privileges and this responsibility, and he stored it away and returned it. And friends, what does that reflect? Jesus is telling the disciples, and he's telling us the day, of his concern for the church as it waits. You see, because this servant misunderstood the nature of his master. Did you hear what he said about the nobleman? Listen to it again. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Listen to Jesus' response. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. 
You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Jesus is asking almost a rhetorical condemnatory question. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? So if I really was severe, then shouldn't you have at least done that? But the servant has completely misunderstood the nature of the nobleman. And friends, we can completely misunderstand the nature of God, of grace and what He wants us to do. And we can live in fear like that. And all of the resources that God entrusts to us, whether those be in the gifts that He gives us as people, or whether it be in our finances, or whether it be with our time, whatever it may be, is what Jesus is calling for him here is servants who are fully devoted to Him, who give everything of their resources to investing those resources for return for the king. They're not earning anything and they're not gaining their way into heaven, but they're demonstrating their faith in the investment that they make. But this last servant has misunderstood the situation severely because he's misunderstood the nature of his master. And so he doesn't invest. In fact, he holds on to it tight. And what happens is he has everything taken away. And friends, this is the situation for the church. This is the threat. This is what can happen to us as we wait, as we become disillusioned. We grow cold in our affections for the king. He's been gone for a long time. We think maybe he's not going to make good, but I'll still play the part. And so we somewhat seem allied with him, but we don't truly serve him in his interest. This is what can happen. And we reflect a deep misunderstanding of the nature of our master. And this is what our Lord Jesus is seeking to undo. As we wait for the kingdom, as we live in the time between the times, is he wants to enforce for us, for us to know the great privilege of being set apart as his servants, those who've been ransomed for God by his death and resurrection, that our citizenship in this city and our privilege of being servants have nothing to do with us, that that is God's decision and God's work on our behalf, and it's freely given. And friends, because of that free gift, then that we invest that we give ourselves wholeheartedly, that we're not trying to renege and we're not trying to negotiate and we're not just making our obedience work out when it's convenient for us, but that we give ourselves fully, wholly, utterly to the cause of this great king. Because, friends, this is the context we live in. Our future is certain as well. And because that future is certain... Are you investing? Are you investing in a way that's in keeping with the gift and the privilege that's been conferred on you? That's what Jesus is driving after in this strange parable, is to put that question. Are you investing with all that you have and with all that he's given you, all that he's put at your disposal? Are you giving yourself fully to him? And friends, we do so because he has given himself fully to us. All the joys and pleasures of the kingdom, all the hopes of the future to come, all the forgiveness that we can imagine. That's what your God has for you. 
And he calls you to answer that in faith. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us. As we live in the time between the times, as we wait, and as we know what can happen to us when we begin to doubt, and that we can grow selfish, and we can become self-oriented, and we become like this wicked servant, keep us from that. Help us to fully invest all the resources that you give to us. May we pour them into the things that you love. And may you produce the fruit of that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.